thank you and for inviting me into your homes, uh, into your micro-communities, uh, wherever you happen to be watching this particular message today. If you're on YouTube, uh, synchronous with everybody else on Sunday morning, or if you're watching this asynchronous, thank you for inviting me in, and I will try to respect your time and uh, respect the scripture this morning. Uh, let me first off say that I have the privilege of working with an amazing team of youth leaders, and I would hate to have the opportunity to be up front uh, in this church building in front of you on this screen and not say thanks to them. So Brian, Danica, Brooke, Jamil, Ken, Alana, Terrence, Ben, Jordan, my heartfelt thanks to you guys. Your stories have become interwoven with stories from students all over the East Bay, and your influence is going to change lives for the next decades. So thank you so much. Um, let me start by praying a blessing over these guys and by praying a blessing over you in your homes. And then we'll dive into the text of Genesis 32. It won't be our text for the day. Uh, it's just going to help us understand John 4. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And amen. Uh, let me begin today from the book of Genesis. It's not our text like I mentioned, but this should help us understand the backdrop to John 4 and the story of the woman at the well. Genesis 32, 22 to 31. The same night he arose, that is Jacob, and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw, ooh, I should change this slide, I apologize. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of the joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Once again, <laughs> not our passage, but I promise it's not just a pretext. We'll get back into that shortly. Now, since the earliest days of the church, believers in Jesus have taken comfort in the story of the woman at the well. In, <clears throat> in the catacombs of Praetextus, this picture is painted on a Christian grave. One of the earliest examples of Christian art in the catacombs, and it captures the story of the woman at the well encountering Jesus. And then similarly, in the catacombs near Via Latina, is this image. Now, these are probably 4th century paintings in the Roman catacombs that depict the encounter of Jesus woman, the woman at the well. And especially in the days of persecution, this conversation between Jesus 
and a woman of Samaria was especially comforting because the earliest believers were, were asking the same questions that the first century Jews were asking. And that was this, where is our security? What makes us secure when everything else is shaking? Now, into this, um, into this question, we find uh, a group of Jews looking to John the Baptist and saying, John, what should we be expecting here? What security can we find? Now, John was baptizing along the Jordan, about two-thirds of the way along the Jordan from the Dead Sea up to the Sea of Galilee. This baptism naturally was not to identify with Jesus. Rather, it was an act of purification to prepare for the imminent end of time and ultimate judgment. Jews in the first century perceived baptism to be a decidedly, uh, apologies for this word, eschatological event. It was an end times preparation. So this had the effect of making conscientious Jews really quite nervous. Is the end near? How do I purify myself for the judgment of God? This is the same question that early believers were asking. Persecution had broken out in the Roman Empire, sporadic but consistent. And these, these early Christians were asking, am I secure? Is God's judgment here? How do I purify myself for God's judgment? We see this discussion arising in, in early uh, first century Judea. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was baptizing with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. The question on the table is this. Have you taken notice? There's a new influential, even apocalyptic Jewish teacher making waves in Judea. Is this, in fact, the end? And if so, how do I prepare? How do I prepare for the judgment of God? Should we find our security in the path of the Pharisees? The path of conservative religious moralism? Are are guilt and legalism where I should put my energy? This is the path of the Pharisees, and it was very popular in the first century. And the Jews wanted to know, is that where I should turn? Or should we find our security in the path of the Sadducees, the path of humanistic compromise? Are sobriety and utility where I should put my hope? Do they have the answer? More of a humanistic response? Or are the mystics right? And security is elusive. Ceremony, harmony, and peace for the sake of peace really are the height of religious experience. These aren't uncommon places to look for security even today. Uh, The religious people of the 20th century are looking in the same places that the religious people in the first century looked. But John doesn't really answer their question. In fact, he, he speaks into this tension with a decidedly non-answer. He points at his own life and he says, I'm a, I'm a foil for the life of heaven. My purpose here is to show you that I'm really nothing compared to this one who's coming. He shows that he is intentionally weak so that we can see more clearly the greatness of something beyond him. 
He uses his weakness as a megaphone to point people to the strength of Jesus. He who comes from above is above all, he says. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Whoever receives his, te- his testimony sets his seal to this. Now listen to this. All right. I know we've been looking at the tension, and maybe you aren't feeling the tension right now. That's all right. But the tension in this passage is this desire for security. And the people want to know, where do I find security? Humanism, moralism, mysticism, where do I find my security? And aggravatingly, all John the Baptist is willing to offer them is this. Well, God is true. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. God is true. This tension just sits over the passage then. People want to be pure. And all they can walk away with is God is true. The world is shaking, and all you know is that, well, God is true. And into this tension walks an unlikely figure, a social outcast from a tribe of social outcasts, or rather simply, a Samaritan with a water jar and a reputation. Now we turn into John chapter 4, and this is our text for the day. And the reason we've looked behind the text is this. This text is actually the answer to a problem. The problem is, where do we find our security in the day of judgment? And the answer is, the woman at the well encounters Jesus. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Joseph had given to his son, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Here's Jesus, traveling into the territory of the people of Samaria. I won't give you a historical background on these people, but what you've heard in the past, and if you've ever had any sort of teaching on Scripture, the Good Samaritan or the Woman at the Well, is you know that she's a social outcast and that this people is decidedly disliked by the Jewish people. Did Jesus really have to go through Samaria to get from Judea up to Galilee? No. Not in some geographical sense. But he did if he was going to have this conversation. And he comes to her. He comes to her town. He sits on the well. And he's weary. He's exhausted. Some 400 years later, the church father, St. Augustine, looked back at this initial interaction between the Savior and the Samaritan. And actually spoke really kind of sweetly and tenderly. He wrote in his uh, commentary on the Gospel of John directly to the woman. And said, it was for thee that Jesus was wearied with his journey. The one who comes from above, the heavenly man, God himself, is wearied from his journey. He's tired. He sits down. He needs a drink. 
he has been pursuing this divine opportunity, which is afforded to him only because he's a man. Because God himself has made himself weak and a servant. He's given himself flesh and blood for the purpose of dying, suffering. He is weary as he journeys from faith to faith to the cross. But it is this very journey to the cross which makes him uniquely qualified to be oppression conscious. He sees and responds to oppression when he comes across it. I I think that speaks to us today. Like, we identify ourselves as people of the cross. How can we not be conscious of the oppression in our midst? We who are identified by our commitment to the cross. How, How can we possibly call ourselves people of a crucified Savior and not be conscious of the oppression around us? I think that's going to come back into this passage again. But we see that right at the beginning with a tired Savior looking to save a social outcast. Her response to this tired Jew was one of curious surprise. How is it that you, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. He would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you you get that living water? Sitting around a well. And he offers her water. The one without the jar. The one with no access to the water. He offers her living water. And her response is this. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jesus, are you greater than the Jacob of the Old Testament who dug this well and gave it to our people? And here we again encounter the text of Genesis 32. Let's put our minds back there. All of his life, Jacob had lived up to his name. Jacob actually means to grasp, to take, to steal. Uh, Which you see in the beginning of the book of John when Nathanael comes to Jesus. And Jesus looks at Nathanael and says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no, you might read it as guile or malice. The word there is actually Jacob. Behold, an Israel in whom there is no Jacob. Jacob was, in fact, a verb that meant to steal, to cheat, or to lie. He had manipulated his brother for a birthright. He'd manipulated his father for a blessing. He'd manipulated his uncle for wealth. And in the end, in Genesis 32, he was left alone. The only person left to manipulate, cheat, and lie was God. Jacob's response to the limited resources in the world was an impetus to hoard. He was not oppression conscious. Rather, he oppressed when he had the upper hand. And here in John's gospel is a woman known for her lies. 
She has been used, and therefore she in turn uses people. She's been oppressed, and therefore she identifies with the father of oppression, this Jacob. So when Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here, the woman answered him with as much truth as she needed to manipulate. I have no husband. You are right in saying I have no husband, says Jesus. You told the truth, partially. Her character is unfaithful, someone who, like Jacob, has used people to her own advantage. Her relationship to truth is as a user and not as a respecter. And now, just like Jacob, she's left alone with God. In Jacob's story, we see that he wrestles with God. And God gives him a limp. God touches his hip. And he spends the rest of his life bent over in submission. But with a whole new identity. Someone who respects this God who has given him everything he has. Similarly, this Samaritan woman, she wrestles with God here. She comes face to face with Jesus and her identity and posture are changed as she walks away. Where is her security? Where can she find living water? Where can she find the security she needs? So what becomes of this Samaritan woman? A woman who traces her heritage back to the father of manipulation and lies, Jacob. Uh, Here we go. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So there is just something she knows. She knows that someone is coming. She knows she's got hope that there is security there. When she's really rattled, she goes, no, someone's coming. There's got to be hope. There must be some security in this world for someone like me. When left alone with God, she just needs security. And Jesus responds tenderly, like St. Augustine does years later, it's me. I'm the one. And off she goes, back into the town. The woman with a reputation runs back into her town, leaving her jar. And speaks to people who have no respect for her, who don't want to be around her, and who generally avoid her. And says to them, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Once again, it feels like we haven't answered the question. Where do I find security? Where do I find something stable in the midst of a tumultuous world? And it turns out that this confused and thirsty Samaritan woman provides that answer for us. She turned the story of lies and manipulation, which had been her shame and drove her to seek isolation, into the truth which pointed an entire town to Jesus. How do we prepare for the judgment of God? And this, this is it right here. You baptize your story into God's spirit 
And as it's raised out, you become a truth teller. This woman, whose character is identified with her father Jacob, is baptized into Jesus, and she goes, I want to be identified with Jesus and not Jacob. I want to tell my story because it has been redeemed by Jesus. Stop telling Jacob's story with your life. Stop reckoning that the good in this world is something to hoard. And instead, let God speak truth to you and transform you into a truth teller. When her story becomes his story, the woman became a truth teller. Come hear all of my faults. Right? That's what she did. She ran into the city and she said, hey, come listen This guy just told me every awful thing I've ever done. Why would you go announce that to the entire town which thinks you have a reputation and doesn't want to be around you? Because he's using my story to tell a better one. How great is he? My life can be a megaphone for the Messiah. How can I not share all the gruesome details with you? Because he already knows them. And he he speaks them over me as a way of saying, they're mine now. Your story is mine now. You're a truth teller. Her life, faults and all, is plunged into the spirit of God. And as she emerges, cleansed, we find her now as a truth teller. One whose story is now worth telling. Which holds a weight that we can, can withstand the judgment of God. For she no longer clings to it tightly. She has made it entirely the possession of Jesus. This is the response to the question. Where do we find security? We find it by no longer reckoning the good in this world as something to hoard. No longer reckoning our efforts as good enough. But instead, we take our entire life, faults and all, and say, Oh, this story points people to the truth in Jesus? Well, thank you for this story then. It kind of cuts across the moralizing, cuts across the humanism, it even cuts across the mysticism. It says, no, what Jesus offers is truth. And this then can become our mantra. I, too, can glory in the light my faults have shown on my forgiver. I hope that you can glory in the light that your faults shine on your forgiver. Because for an entire town, on an eventful day in first century Samaria, one person's broken story became the truth they needed to turn to Jesus. So what truth can you tell? How can you speak truth into this world? How can you turn your story into the truth that your town needs to hear? I encourage you to consider that this Sunday. As we look for ways to socially distance and still offer to the world the life they need and the security that they need. God bless you.